Have you ever wondered about films that never made it to the big screen or even television and streaming services? Well then, the Screenplay Archaeology podcast may be for you. On our show, we take a look at scripts or teleplays that were never produced, or sometimes even early drafts that were significantly changed before or during shooting, as well as the stories behind why they never came to be. Good script or bad, we consider them all to be fair game. So if any of this interests you, then come check out Screenplay Archaeology. This is the Triple C Podcast. Talking all things comics, culture, and cosplay. With Josh, Mari, Kevin, and Zach. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone out there listening to us out in listening land. Welcome to the Comics, Culture, and Cosplay Podcast. I'm your host this week, Kevin, joined by a, uh, a fully stacked deck of a host. We've got we got a, we got a classic formula here. We got we got uh, we got Mari, we got Yo. we got Zach, we got Josh, we got everybody here. We got we got we got everybody here this time. Um, but before we before we get into it, I want to uh, top of the show give a big shout out to our new home. Away from home, the Fandom Limb Media Podcast Network. That's F A N D O M Limb Media Podcast Network. You can find other great shows such as Friday Island Podcast. I watch this as an adult. Dad's doing nerd shit. We got the Nooniverse, and of course, Stargirl After Show, and much, much more. If you're starved for a ner- nerdy media themed podcast, this is a this is a good home away from home. You as well. We might be a little bit biased because we're on the network, but I think I think we got uh, some great shows for you here. So, uh, before we get started, how's everybody doing? How's how's your week? Uh, it snow. snowed yesterday in Chicago. The fucking! I was so mad. I looked out my window and I saw flakes the size of my thumb. I was like, "You better fucking melt before you hit the fucking ground." I am not in the mood for your fluffy white horse shit this week. Mm-mm. Just just sitting, looking out your window with like a, an hourglass and a cup of coffee. All the lights just going, yeah, just watch every single one. It, it's more like looking out the window with an hourglass and a fucking flamethrower. Okay, that's, yeah, no, that, that, that tracks. Got to hit, got to get him before they hit the ground. See, Zach, when you said fluffy white bullshit, I was picturing you saying that to a large group of uh, fluffy white bunnies and like, look, you are cute. But if you poop in oh, my listen, shoes only, one more time, the only place those rabbits belong is in my soup pot. Oh my god, man! The Easter the Easter Bunny's about to call a Lobo out on you, fucking. The okay, Easter Bunny's a, about to end up part. as a delicious entree. Ooh. Do we? What? You know, that's interesting. Like the, I, I, okay, maybe this is just my my own ignorance, but like I don't understand the concept of of the Easter Bunny. Why a bunny if you're gonna only eat ham? You know what I mean? I, I just don't. That may, maybe that's just me. Can someone explain this? I mean, do uh, we really want to get into it? Because uh, I no, okay, you maybe look not. up Ishtar, which is the pagan goddess that Easter draws its I, name from, and no, has a lot okay, to do. No, no, trust me. Do not look up Ishtar. <laughs> that's a character in Fake Grand Order. You will regret it. <laughs> Fucking in- very, very interesting. Okay, just like. Listen, do you, don't don't make your your search history like ours when we have to research the show sometimes. <laughs> Just that's all I'm gonna say. Um, speaking of uh, something that's gonna become either good history or bad history, this is one of these things that um, it's a little bit muddy right now. But uh, I, I kind of commend Sony for 
doing something to try and, and compete with Xbox. And of course, we're looking at the new changes to PlayStation Plus. Um, so they're gonna it's essentially going to receive an overhaul. Uh, we've got three tiers, right? The bottom tier is what most of us probably have right now. If you have PlayStation, if you're on PS4 or PS5, 60 bucks a year, get you access to online two game, two free games a month. Um, my personal speculation is the quality of those games are going to go down by oh, a lot yeah. to try and oh, push yeah. you to those higher tiers. Um, so then we have the the second tier, which which let me give me two. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Um, Number two, first one, okay, the first one, PlayStation Essential. That's the one we got now. Then we got PlayStation Plus Ultra, 15 bucks a month, and you get access to up to 400 PS4 and PS5 games of varying quality, I'm sure. Um, and then PlayStation Plus Premium, that's all of that. And then basically PSN, you, you get to download PS1, PS2, PS3, and PSP, PSP games. Because um, you know this is the highest tier, they know it's a little bit more niche. So, what do you guys think about these uh, these announcements overall? And this is coming out specifically in U.S., Canada, Japan, Australia, and, and uh, 15 European countries. Although uh, none of those are listed. Uh, what do you What do you think about this new price listing for PS Plus? I could a I could care less. B mm -hmm. I think it's a slap mm -hmm. in the face that they're going to reward long time like users and viewers with whatever this bullshit is like. I've had play PlayStation Plus for many years. Uh, the fact that they're not going to, like, and father you in to get some decent games, go fuck yourself, Sony. Mm. I just find it... A, I agree. I think... <laughs> I think a couple of things. I think that the value is so obviously skewed in the favor of of buying it, you know, for the annual price. Like, it's literally twice as much to just do monthly basic level PlayStation Plus as it is to uh, get it for the whole year, right? The difference between 60 bucks and 120 bucks. So that off, it's, it's bad. Like, okay, I get, I get bundling and saving, you know what I mean, doing it for good. But I guess it kind of goes back to, I don't know what their general users are like. I know for people like my younger brother who doesn't have his own credit card you know he can only do monthly subs because he's basing it off of being able to go to the store and buy cards and game time you know what i mean you know buying monthly subs and stuff like that i don't know something about it just doesn't sit right but then again i'm also the kind of game player who i buy a game and i play that game for 200 hours and then I'm done with it and I never need it again. So I don't, I'm just not their person. I don't need the variety. I don't need access to 400 different games a month uh, because I just do other things. I agree with you about that. And I am also not a heavy gamer, unlike you guys. Like I'm still playing my way through uh, God of War, mostly because I'm having way too much fun mayheming my way through what nine realms I can access. And there you go. Like I, like, I don't need 400 games. Now, if I were to go to, say, Galloping Ghost Arcade down in Brookfield, that's different. Then I am there for those 400-plus games. Because I only paid $20 to play all of them for free. Galloping Ghost is one of the fucking coolest places I've Galloping ever been Ghost to. is a great place. But Fuck. we're not here anyway. for Galloping Ghost. We're here to complain about fucking Sony. Yeah. Because uh, I, I haven't been able to do that for a hot minute. So it fills my soul with glee. Oh, it um, just and it obviously just just starts just starts here. But I think the the last thing that I guess I want to kind of bring to the table before we move on to the next 
uh, thing. The next point about Sony that we that we want to bring up here is that I think that as a longtime uh, PS Plus subscriber, I think all we're going to really look forward to is just being marketed to a lot more since we're now technically at at you know at the bottom tier. And I think this just kind of feeds into the whole fact that nobody owns anything, right? Like. And that's the case with the free games that you download for PS Plus. You only have access right. to those as long as you continue to, to pay the monthly subscription. I guess, you know, once you play a game and you're done with it, you know, then that's fine. But, uh, you know, ultimately, just go with, honestly, I'm kind of leaning more towards physical media and just buying, like, a, a big, like, plastic bin and just, just, get, just hoarding as much physical media as I can at this point because it's becoming so like clear and we of course bring we hammer this drum a lot on the show but nobody owns anything right it's kind mm-hmm. of uh very very fluid and this really just deepens deepens that um fucking i know i wasn't here last week we talked we talking about gta plus um that that whole thing but I, that's that's just a cash grab that's not even about ownership that's just like pay money to get access to the ability to pay more money um well and we'll talk about it later uh right when we kind of talk about some choices that disney plus has made but to your point kevin when you don't own a physical copy of the media then you are susceptible to whatever the person who actually owns that media chooses to do with it you know if Amazon servers get wiped tomorrow, you've lost access to all of these games, videos, whatever that you've purchased. If, you know, Valve goes under tomorrow, you know, how many thousand... Oh, sorry. (laughs) Just kidding, universe. Just kidding. Don't put that in the fucking universe, you monster. That's not safe for posterity. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, all that means is I still don't want to own things. I, I I need a comfortable middle ground, which... I would like to point out grossly is technically what NFTs are, um, but I I want to own my thing and have it be my thing, but I also don't want physical copies of things because they do nothing but take up space and collect dust. That's that's actually a really interesting, like, I, I don't know, application of the blockchain to take all of your streamed media and kind of make it, you know, your copy of whatever digital copy of a game is yours and it's linked to the blockchain and if whatever goes down, it's still yours. That's 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 like what I think the blockchain should and could be used for, but now it's just used to hawk like fucking stupid stoner monkey pictures. I don't know. It's just, yep. Oh, what you don't I, like stoner monkey pictures? I, I board ape yacht club. No, I'm not a I'm not a fucking fan. What are you I'm some kind fan. of fucking troglodyte? Yes, absolutely. Um, just just like. I don't know. Fucking Sony. More Sony. Um, Sony laid off uh, the PlayStation arm specifically, lamed, uh, <clears throat> laid off 90 employees, citing global transformation. Now, the 90 employees that were laid off, um, according to this, this article that we're referencing here, spoke to one of the employees in question, and their department got uh, no forewarning, just kind of one day, hey, 90 people, gone. Uh, and these are mainly uh, people involved in advertising to the retail sector, either training uh, PlayStation store employees about new, or Sony employees training them about new PlayStation products, stuff like that. But at the meantime, Sony now in their PlayStation arm is hiring people to hawk these new streaming services. So that sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're hiring more advertising people to sell, I'm assuming these new tiers of PlayStation Plus and just chop 90 people from retail. 
I mean, it I... feels like you could have done literally anything with those 90. Like, come on. Put them. You're going to all the trouble. Like Kevin said, you're going to all the trouble of making this new arm, and you're not going to put these guys anywhere in there. I, I mean, it makes sense. It, to me, makes a ton of sense that you don't need representatives to go out into the community and show people how to play PlayStation anymore, how to play games, how to, how to, you know what I mean? Remember when you went to Best Buy 20 years ago and there was the demo version of the Xbox for you to check out and oh my gosh, uh, we don't need that anymore. We've been playing this shit for 20 years. You know, people are building their own out of 3D printers and things at this point. Um, it makes sense to the very point we were just talking about as less and less people buy physical copies of games and go to physical retailers to purchase them and everything's digital downloads of course it makes a ton of sense that you're not going to have people who are boots on the ground salesmen and instead they're going to be insidious redditors who just you know work playstation plus subscriptions into their conversation and you don't even realize you're getting sold to i see you but i you know i hope that they use that money wisely i hope that that money goes into making the games you know making the units themselves better goes into um you know funding better projects and not just oh hey uh we saved a couple million dollars on payroll let's put it in somebody's pocket that never goes anywhere that's awfully hopeful mari <laughs> right? I... yeah, i'm so optimistic <laughs> i'm so optimistic these who days. are you and what the hell have you done with my friend mm-hmm. <laughs> i've been really like batting on the side of corporations lately haven't i well, let's let's see how how you manage uh, to to spin spin this one, you corporate shell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's go. Let's see what I got. So, right, so let's talk about Valve, right? Um, so we we had mentioned it on a previous week um, that Ukrainian game devs who are publishing their games through Steam are having difficulty getting paid, and, and our initial reaction was, okay, is this on part of Valve in particular? We're getting we got a little bit more information about why this is, and it looks to be the fact that the bank that Valve uses to kind of you know, handle all their invoicing, handle all their payments to the developers um, is being just very highly scrutinizing, it seems like. There's unfortunately, I, I don't have a lot for y'all here, unfortunately, uh, but more just if you're wondering about this, if you know anyone who might be affected by this, um, this appears to be an issue regarding their bank. However, uh, Steam or Valve asserts that there's going to be some sort of a pass, some sort of fix for this by April. Many devs are are a little bit skeptical. Uh, I, you know, I don't know enough about this to really weigh in, but I, what are you guys' thoughts on this? I'm glad that it is sanctions related and not just Valve being like, well, this is really too hard for us to figure out. Um, going back to our blockchain, I this is a really interesting opportunity you know they were talking about all these different workarounds and loopholes that developers were having to try and do including things like opening up foreign bank accounts um and i i just find this very interesting because on the uh one hand right it's like obviously we want these developers to get paid there should obviously be ways for them to access funds um, that are not threatened by sanctions, but at the same time, making those things available means that, what's the word that I want to use? Bad actors can also use those loopholes to get around. So it's just a really shitty situation. 
can they cut checks? I don't know if that helps. Uh, but I mean, there's got to be some cutting a check won't really help. The issue is the bank that they're the bank using. itself. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, you know, I these people need the money, right? No question. But I do want to point out, it's not like Valve is pocketing this money, right? Like, theoret. Well, God, I hope not. Theoretically, all this money should be going into an escrow account that, you know, if these, you know, when these devs have the ability to to pull the money out, right, it will be there, theoretically, uh, I hope. Agree, agree, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I hope so. But it doesn't, like, their shit's already hard. Like, this probably doesn't make it any easier. Should be some sort of immediate fallback, like, in any case of this happening although uh, you know it is ultimately the the bank itself not to you know you know make an excuse to 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 big banks but it's a bank trying to figure out the nature of the the sanctions and kind of how to zig and zag and you know are there bad actors you know establishing uh accounts in ukraine stuff like that again the only personal speculation but like that's really the only thing i could see just being extra scrutinizing uh, however certain <clears throat> companies game devs uh, are responding to the con the, the the invasion of Ukraine uh, a little bit drastically, in my opinion. Let me know what you guys think about this. Uh, so, the game War Thunder, which is essentially a, a multiplayer war combat game, you can fly uh, helicopters, you can tanks and ships and all that stuff. Um, completely blocked interteam or interteam uh, game chat. Right, so you can speak to your own team members. But you can no longer uh, no, you can have a public party members. It, they they did oh. block it for whole team. Like unless you're in, you know, a party or a group chat or whatever, you can't. Your immediate friends. Okay, so that's that's even more. Honestly, that's more extreme than I, I had even thought. Um, you know, on the one hand, in the midst of this conflict, there is a lot of disinformation that is spread over so many different channels and in games. Of course, um, you know that mode of communication is one of, is a one of them, a very, very popular one, but I don't think there's any situation where this level of blanket censorship is necessary. I think you just need better moderation, but what do you guys think about it? Moderation's expensive. Like, like in this particular instance, I do actually get what they're saying, right? This is a very specific thing. Tensions are going to be running high on all sides. Like, the amount of extra mod tickets that you would need to support for this is enormous or you could just say fuck it turn it off turn it off we're not going to deal with this right rather than hire extra people and try to figure all this out we could just turn it off i get it it's is it a lazy solution absolutely mm -hmm. do i get it <laughs> yeah i do right because there's uh, you're exactly right zach like think about there's no way to do it that wouldn't just piss everybody else off too right because whatever you hold true for one you'd have to hold true for the other so you're going to get people being like well why did you allow this person to say that but when i said this you know totally unrelated other thing you know it just it's insane um it's it's interesting to me because i hate for the most part uh online chat i don't ever I more often than not have a not pleasant experience when I'm in the general public chats, uh, regardless of whether it's politics related. But I, I can see where it's extra difficult in a game where I assume, chat, you know, 
being able to strategize and talk to people is critical to winning that game. If it's really just to be in a chat and shit talk and talk to each other, then be lazy, turn it off. Uh, but if it's impacting actual gameplay and your ability to be successful at it, then you kind of need to come up with, uh, you kind of need to come up with something else. You know what I mean? Whether or not it's just having a, uh, a, uh, standard answers standard shouts that you can put out there whatever it is but i don't know <laughs> what a shit show yeah i mean it's it's bad i like i said i get it i really do right this is uh, right i don't know how how well this company's doing and right if this was if this was a blizzard entertainment saying that i'd be like no nah, fuck you you can definitely afford you know 30 more moderators to to handle the people who are going, uh, you know, chanting Z's in chat and saying, go Russia, go Putin, whatever, right? I don't know how much money these devs make, you know? They, I know they run a successful series of games, but that does not mean they're swimming in money, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So maybe they legitimately can't afford to hire the extra moderators, or they just don't want to deal with it. I don't know. Josh, what, what do you think? Honestly... Uh... I was never one for chats either. I think the only time I ever found it useful is if I was doing like team matches with certain games like uh, the Call of Duty zombie missions with friends and stuff because then if you're not playing in the same room as the person then you can actually make like, okay, where are you? Okay, you're over by the barn. Great. Are you going to hit the uh, bonus box and try to get a new firearm? Great. Okay. Uh, where are we regrouping? Yada, yada, yada. By and large, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a lost thing to me, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of angles to it. And I think just the, the nature of the conflict, there's a there's just a, a lot of misinformation going in, in one direction. And, you know, it, it's it's a war. It's messy. There's going to be messy solutions. But, you know, we're well, here to like, yeah, I, you know, I did just remember something, you know, it's it's extra difficult because, right, this is a game based off real life with real equipment, right? Someone like might really like using i don't know the soviet era tanks because oh i like the play style it works really well for me right and then because right then you get the guy who's like oh you're playing the soviets what do you fucking hate you right you get yeah. the guy who just flies off the handle right mm -hmm. and then on that same note like you were talking about disinformation is a thing right you get the person who's like uh no no no, no. this is you know hell it could literally be a paid russian shill i don't know yeah. It's messy, it's... like you said. But uh, one thing that definitely shouldn't, I think, be messy, uh, in my opinion, is how how Disney is kind of handling censorship, not only of its content, but of voice creative voices within its company. Uh, so the, the I guess you could call it the, the lighter end of the story uh, involves um, Disney editing out a couple scenes from Falcon and Winter Soldier that were you know, a little bit more violent than you might normally think a Disney joint would be. Um, we're, you know, looking a little bit more like, like a, like a Netflix show. Um, so it was one point where I, I, I forgot it was U.S. agent was like beating a guy's head. It was like, it was pretty brutal, but the point is your TVMA now stick to your guns. Um, and for a moment, those scenes and another one where a guy was like killed and his eyes were open and it was edited to be close. These were edited, edited in and revised accidentally 
um, as one of their editors was trying to work on something in the end credits and then, hey, just accidentally revised it, which means this was already planned and on deck. And I guess they were just kind of caught and they edited it back. Um, but, you know, it's one thing to kind of take a look at un uncomfortable points in your in your in your catalog, you know, I, I re songs of the South sort of a thing um, and then kind of uh, present that in a sort of a way like, you know, you don't censor that but why is this something that you that you censor you know what I mean? like why not include everything and then just frame it in a certain kind of a way where you know you, i don't know where it makes sense where you don't feel like you have to do this sort of a thing i mean it goes back to what we were talking about right you don't own anything so they can totally come in there and do what they want to it you know what i mean this isn't the first time Remember how much grief everybody gave um, Steven Spielberg when they edited out the guns in E.T. to turn them into walkie-talkies? I did, I did not. Oh, do you know about that? Oh, yeah, that was a whole thing. I, to me, this just kind of... A, look into it. Okay, B, this kind of like highlights to me just sort of how arbitrary these rating systems are, right? Like, um, for anybody who has already watched Falcon and Winter Soldier, par you know, parents who've already allowed their kids to watch that and may not have, I don't know, I don't know how to say it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's so dumb. Like, I, I acknowledge that they were like, okay, well, maybe, you know, this rebar going through her shoulder is too violent, so let's make it bounce and that'll be that will conform to what this version of TV and, you know, 14 is versus what our rating of 14 is, which is different apparently by movie studio versus TV versus I know it's different in the UK than it is here. So Jeez. I'm just going to say this, like I, uh, I remember, I'll put it this way. I remember when all these rating systems came into play when they started doing ratings and stuff like that especially for televised content i'm not old enough around the movies um I, it just comes back to the same thing as always if you are a parent and you're going to be concerned about a piece of media that your child is watching either watch it first or watch it with them be engaged in the con in the content that your children are consuming and then you know these little sort of like shortcuts that are really just nothing more than to cover their own asses at the end of the day um, <laughs> won't even need to have an article written about it. You know, as far as this thing goes, you know, I get, uh, you know, Mark, you say be engaged, and that's really important, but, you know, it is a lot harder these days what exactly, exactly how much control you have over what your kids see, right? Like, YouTube is a great example, right? There's no... Uh, right like there's youtube kids but we you know we've all heard about weird ass shit that definitely shouldn't be there ending up in youtube kids and you know maybe you you know you let your kids sign into netflix or, or disney plus to watch i don't know beauty and the beast and then they're like i like captain america i want to watch this captain america thing oh hey mom this guy's head is this guy's getting his head smashed to pieces it might be too late for you to get involved because, oops, I thought they were in safe mode or whatever, but I didn't have them in safe mode. And then they saw this guy get his head smashed in. Yeah, that's, that, that, that could be it. I mean, the point being that it was accidental and, and was reversed, um, but it kind of makes you, you know, think about the nature of content and how nothing's, nothing's, nothing's uh, you know, set in stone. Uh, but moving on to something a, a bit more... A bit more important than than you know the the content of 
I guess violence and Falcon and Winter Soldier. Uh, the the LGBTQIA plus community um, within within uh, Pixar, within members of Disney, wrote an open letter to Disney management, uh, essentially accusing them of censoring same-sex affection at, at every turn. In uh, and this is in response uh, to uh, Bob, to CEO Bob Chapek on Monday. Um, regarding their, Disney's response to Florida's "Don't Say Gay" bill, um, so it, it just it just seems that any time that that gay relationships want to be explored in in an actual way, it's completely shot down. And and um, this is in particular we're looking at at a, a part of the recent Disney and Pixar film Turning Red, um, where the scene was censored out of. Uh, so you know this doesn't really surprise me at all. Uh, to be honest, I mean, especially a company based in Florida, uh, or you know, that operates heavily in Florida. I, I guess you know, make gets a lot of their revenue from Florida and needs to appease Florida. Uh, this doesn't surprise me. But what do you guys think? I mean, this doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, as always, America tends to lean towards violence being a, an acceptable thing for children to confront at a relatively young age i.e this discussion we just had um versus anything to do with sex let alone sexuality um differences in sexual orientation and gender identity like i will genuinely be beyond surprised um when disney acknowledges families like that in their mainstream movies you know what i mean um they reference a couple of examples of little token throwaway lines uh either from you know relatively i don't know would, would we consider onward to be a, a wide release like I, that one didn't feel big to me but then again mm -hmm. i think that came out like right at the start of the pandemic um i would just say i feel like that was more a case of that coming out at the wrong time yeah. than a specific attempt to minimize it. The movie itself, yeah, I would agree. I would yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just... Uh, it's... I can't say I'm surprised. It, it is very interesting to me, though, because uh, Disney and the LGBTQ community have always had this, like, very interesting... Uh, relationship and I don't want to like I could talk for a long time about that actually um and so it always has been this sort of kind of push pull and there is this little bit of a of a tenuous balance and I think people are starting to recognize that and say listen Disney we love you I mean you, you've seen it with people like JK Rowling consumers starting to be like listen we love you and we would spend shit tons of our money to support you but um not if we don't agree with with what you do and what you say and what you support and and not just nominally like that's great that you that the parks are a friendly place for lgbt families um but it's not cool when you support legislation that could harm lgbt families like your words and your actions need to match fuck you disney mm-hmm I don't have a ton else to add here. I mean, it's shitty. Um, if it is true, which we have no reason to think 
otherwise at this juncture it's shitty and you shouldn't be doing it disney like i get it you're you're afraid of a a very small uh but very very loud minority causing you problems and hurting your profit margins uh but just like oil companies could make a few dollars fucking less in the middle of a global war uh you could make a few bucks left less off some very loud crazy voices disney it's tough censorship is something that has been an ongoing issue not only in modern society but you know ever since the concept was created way way back as far as the politics of the situation go i tend to stay away from that if only because it's too divisive and too messy, not because I don't have an opinion, but because to try to wade into the middle of it means that you are quite literally stepping into a quagmire of outrageously overblown proportions. Now, I do agree that Disney, they're having to simply appease the, you know, gladhanders and politicos of Florida is not a smart thing to it's unfortunately part of doing business but i feel like there were other ways to do it than supporting a bill that is counterculture and you know contrary to everything that they try to promote in their media both you know with star wars with disney as a whole with marvel which is they promote diversity and inclusion and a bill like this is kind of flies in the face of it as far as the whole thing with marvel I was reading the article, like you, you know, like we talked about, they say it was a mistake on the part of an editor. If it was, great. If it wasn't, Disney, you gotta take another look, because if you're willing to put the completely uncensored epic of the Defenders shows on your property, then you can't go around and then suddenly pull one thing out of Falcon and Winter Soldier, but leave all of the violence, language, and, yes, sex... That was in all of the Marvel Netflix shows. It's hypocrisy. I, I completely it's not just hypocrisy. Agree. It's confusing as hell. Well, yeah. yeah, more than anything, it's just uh, Misa confused now. Well, well said, Jar Jar. Well said. Uh, but you know, speaking of uh, of things that, that that you've been that you've been saying, you've been you've been talking, you've been talking with Jerry Conway, man. That's okay. We have a very special interview for you guys. Those of you who joined the show recently, we we. Uh, uh, back in the day, we, we ran, ran a lot of interviews and we've got a very special one for you. So without further ado, Josh, let's let's uh, hear what you had to say with comics mega legend Jerry Conway, known for writing Batman, Spider-Man, co-creator of The Punisher and so much more. Hello out there to everyone in listening land. Josh with the Triple C podcast here, and I'm going to grab the wheel of life and steer us into an off-ramp of awesome for a brief moment. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome back to the podcast a return guest who we have been very fortunate to have on in previous times. He has written screenplays, written work for television, but most notably, he has also written for comic books over the years. He has written for Spider-Man, The Avengers, Justice League, Batman, Werewolf by Night, and Firestorm. He is the one, the only, Jerry Conway. Jerry, how are you doing, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It is so wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Now, to just dive right into this, because we're going to go a little in-depth to your uh, your career here than we have in previous conversations. You started out as a comics fan from a very early age. Now, was there anything that specifically 
fueled your desire to become a writer growing up? It probably was uh, a result of wanting to do something with comics or with movies or with stories in general. As a kid growing up, I was entranced by storytelling. I loved telling stories. I loved being told stories, loved reading stories. Uh, you know, I think as a introverted kid, you know, I embraced uh, reading probably more than most. It gave me an opportunity to, you know, socialize internally. <laughs> I wasn't like the most outgoing kid. So reading was my, my primary source of interaction with the world. And I think the desire to tell stories, you know, just was a, a compliment to that. You talk about your childhood and reading informing you and everything now talking about comics in the in this particular instance because that is the nexus of our focus and discussion here i understand that you wrote some fan mail to marvel at at one point that was actually published in the letters page of one of their books is that correct yeah yeah i actually wrote a um a letter to uh fantastic four i mean to the to the to stand at fantastic four um, regarding, I think, the first appearance and it was subsequently published in uh, uh, issue 50, which was, I believe, the first issue of the Galactus trilogy. So it, it was pretty early on. Ironically, I also wrote a letter to Justice League at around the same time, and uh, that was also published uh, in Justice League number 50. So 50 was my lucky number for both, both books. I absolutely, I I was, that's fantastic. Yeah, I think it was like 12 years old or something like that. Uh, you know, 11 or 12 years old. I love that. That is, so, 50 clearly was your lucky number because you mentioned that you were 12 years old at the time. And so that, and like you said, that was uh, at the time, at a certain point in time. Now, jumping ahead to the later 60s, your career in comics took off with some scripts being published by DC before you transitioned over to Marvel. How did you make the leap from one company to another? I'd already started, you know, writing for DC a couple of years before I started working for Marvel. And as a result of working for DC, I had become, you know, acquainted with a number of other writers and artists of my generation, just like and older, you know, I mean, I was the youngest person in the, in the, the, the group. And I'd met Roy Thomas, uh, who was the assistant editor, you know, at Marvel. And at the time that Marvel wanted to expand into the supernatural anthology books, similar to what DC was doing, I and a, a handful of other uh, DC writers submitted to those books. You know, we, uh, there was no, we weren't exclusive to DC in the sense of, exclusivity today but you know there was a kind of pressure to stay you know writing primarily for one company or or the other marvel didn't really have any big openings at the time but the the supernatural anthology books provided a, a, a you know a little a little uh, door you know crack in the door into the into the company and then as the marvel started to expand slightly started publishing a little bit, you know, a couple more titles a month, I think, at that point. Roy brought me in, you know, to do to do more writing for the company. And uh, eventually, 
made me a full-time writing author. So I moved over from DC to uh, to Marvel. You talk about being a full-time writing person over at Marvel, and this was in the you started. This was you know you the, we're in the late '60s and now jumping into the '70s. Your time at Marvel was a to use the word smorgasbord of writing credits, everything from Werewolf by Night <laughs> and the Avengers, Submariner, and of course, Amazing Spider-Man. Was it difficult to be working on so many different books often at the same time? Not really. I mean, it. it I was young, obviously. I mean, I was. Uh, I think when I when I started writing full time for Marvel, I was about seventeen, um, and. That was right as I was uh, as I was leaving high school and going into uh, college. Uh, the the real difficulty was trying to balance, you know, the my my, my uh, writing career with my college career, and I ended up uh, dropping out of college to write full time. Uh, I was also s- selling short stories and novels at the same time. Um, I just I, I was I was a bundle of energy, you know. I had I had uh, uh, a, a tremendous amount of endurance and, and uh, excitement, you know, with with, with uh, the opportunities that were in front of me. So I I just wrote full out, and I was very fast at that time, uh, and uh, you know I learned how to how to produce relatively clean first drafts. You know, which was the big trick for pulp writers and uh, and uh, uh, genre writers in general at that point. Uh, it was only later, you know, that I started to see the advantages in rewriting. <laughs> oh my! Oh my goodness! This this is fantastic. Now, when you're talking about being a bundle of energy. One of the books that is very synonymous with your career as a comic book writer is Spider-Man. And during your time that you were working on, you know, everybody's favorite wall-crawling web-slinger, you took a hero that is a cornerstone of pop culture. We, we see him all over the place, the, the movies, television, video games clothing, even, you know, on our cereal boxes and our juice boxes too. And, and you interwove tragedy, triumph and growth into his characters and his stories. Are there any issues or arcs from that time that are particular favorites of yours, just specifically on Spider-Man? Well, I mean, obviously the, uh, the death of Gwen Stacy storyline and, and the, uh, the clone saga that followed it, which introduced the Punisher, are both, you know, uh, uh, stories that I'm I'm proud of uh, working on. Uh, almost everything that I did with Ross Andrew, you know, I think was was pretty good. And Ross uh, and I worked on that book for I think the last two years that I was that I, I initially wrote it. So you know, it was a it was a very fertile period. And I, I, I <laughs> and 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 it. it it, it's kind of embarrassing to, to think of that as one of the high points of my career when I was, I think, barely 21 by the time I, I left uh, the book. So <laughs> it's kind of weird. I don't, I, I find it incredibly amazing because you, you, you broke in at such a young age and you made yourself, you know, at that point, the comics industry and the fandom was not the 
massive juggernaut that it is today in terms of like, you know, the connectability with fans due to the advantages of the internet, but not unlike Orson Welles, you know, who is, all, who, who is one of my personally favorite filmmakers, you, you both at a very young age found your, your place in the world and exploded outwardly in kind of a storm of creative growth. And for you, that storm has kept going and going. So from the mid seventies into the eighties, you know, you talked about, we talked about, you started out at DC and then you got into Marvel and now moving forward from the, from the seventies until the eighties, you were also working over at DC comics. And during this time, you co-created a variety of characters, Firestorm, Power Girl, Vixen, Killer Croc, the second Robin, Jason Todd, and you had an eight-year run on Justice League of America. What was that point in your life like after having broken major ground at Marvel and having that huge, fertile, creative streak? It was stressful. (laughs) I mean, that actually, by the time it for DC again, you know, in the, in the mid seventies, um, you know, I had had a brief one year run as a, a, a writer editor at DC uh, before going back even more briefly to Marvel for a few months and then returning to DC. But the, the third time that I worked for DC, which was the ex- extended period that we're talking about, I was more of a writer for a gun for hire at that point. Um, I had an exclusive deal with DC and uh, it did not include editing. Uh, So basically I was working for other people, you know, and, and, and trying to meet their editorial needs, you know, as, as much as, uh, you know, express my own point of view. Uh, The work that I had done at Marvel, Marvel was set up. I was relatively unsupervised. So that work was probably more expressive of you know, what, what, what I would do on my own than some of the work that I was doing at DC. There were, there were obviously books at DC where I had a lot of freedom you know, to, uh, to, to play around with things. Uh, you know, Batman, I, I had a, a lot of freedom there. Justice League. But then there were other books where, you know, I had tighter editorial control, basically uh, uh, pointing the way for, you know, how things should be. The work that I did on Firestorm, I was my own editor for the most part on that book. And then at uh, one point, uh, there was a nominal editor who, you know, was named over the book, you know, as, as uh, the editor, uh, the supposed editor. But, you know, I, I again, you know, was uh, pretty much free to, to, to do what I wanted to do. So it was, it was a, you know, I had a variety, it was a variety of experiences. I had a very heavy workload, which as I, as I got older and became more concerned about the quality of what I was doing, the heavy workload started to weigh on me. And, you know, I started to burn out. So by the, the, the time that I ended my run with DC and uh, the, early to mid eighties, I was pretty much burned out at, at the company and, and at writing comics. And it took me about a year to mentally recuperate, maybe a year or two, at which point, you know, I went back to Marvel for a couple of years uh, while also exploring, getting into uh, writing television. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. I mean, you know, it's a, 
a lot of pressure to make deadlines, but at the same time, uh, a lot of fun trying to break new ground and, and create new things. Now, you mentioned, of course, going to work into television, and uh, I brought that up at the at the top of our conversation. You you've written scripts for TV, and you even collaborated with Roy Thomas on two movie scripts. Correct? Actually, we we collaborated on I think about eight scripts that we sold, wow. um, and two two of them got produced. So that in in Hollywood, that's known as uh, a very high percentage. <laughs> Uh, we, we had a, a period from uh, about 1978 to, I want to say 1985, 84, 85, where we were gradually getting warmer and warmer as a, as a writing team and doing pretty well. Uh, by the end of that period, uh, we were really relative, relatively well paid as uh, not spec writers, because that's a, that was a different market, but as pitch writers, you know, where you'd come in and pitch a project and, uh, and sell it and get a contract to write it. So we were doing fairly well, you know, by that point. And that's, that's about the time too, that I started to burn out in comics. <laughs> so <laughs> both of those, both of those uh, careers kind of uh, collided and, and collapsed around the same time, uh, you know, and, and then, uh, uh, resulted, you know, in a, in a couple of fallow years for me before, you know, I found my way back into uh, writing with enthusiasm. Just to focus briefly, uh, what you were talking about on, on your movie scripts, and you mentioned that you guys collaborated and wrote eight scripts. Two of them were produced, and those two specific films are ones that will no doubt be very familiar to the majority of our listening audience, specifically the uh, Ralph Bakshi animated epic dark fantasy fire and ice which out of all of Bakshi's films has to be one of my personal favorites because it's so reminiscent of classic adventure fantasy and then you guys also wrote the sequel script Conan the Destroyer yes yes we did uh, although the script that was filmed wasn't ours uh, we did we did many drafts of the film uh, during its development process uh, and then at the last minute when uh, it, it went into production, the director, the, the director who was finally hired brought in another writer to do a draft, and he's the one who got the uh, screenplay credit. But we have, we have the story credit on that film. The film we had envisioned would have probably been more, more respectful or authentic to the original Kona material. This is, this is what happens in Hollywood. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. Hollywood is a crazy town and a crazy line of work to get into. And I, 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 I love the fact that you guys still, you have these shared experiences because it's still another mark on the world of creativity that you have a hand in. And over the course of your career, you have given the world heroes and villains, friends and foes. Are there any specific characters that you've enjoyed writing the most? Like ones that if you oh. were to look over your career and say, yes, these are the ones that it's like, <clears throat> oh my goodness, I love them. Well, I mean, obviously the, the characters that I created personally, you know, have, I have a lot of affection for Firestorm uh, being one of the, one of the favorites uh, of mine. Punisher, you know, I, I'm, I'm fond of in his original incarnation and in some of the, uh, 
the reboots that, that have gone uh, gone along over the years. Spider-Man and uh, Batman are both books that I was very happy with my work on. And I mean, so, sometimes you, you love something that other people don't like care one way or the other about, you know, I mean, it was nice that, that, uh, that both Spider-Man and uh, Batman, those, those runs that I, I like personally and that other people like too. A book that I, that I was pretty fond of writing at the time, which I don't think anybody was in, remotely familiar with now, uh, is Scalp Hunter, which was a, a Western uh, book that I did for DC um, that uh, was set during the Civil War. And I tried to uh, make, it an, a, a, make it sort of like a, a, a book that, that was tightly referencing the actual events of the Civil War with our point of view character, Scalp Hunter, moving through those, those events. Because I'm not like a major Civil War buff, but, but a, you know, a moderate Civil War buff. And I rather enjoyed the idea, uh, the opportunity to, uh, to do that book. But as I say, most people probably aren't even that aware of it. No, I, I will say that, and this probably puts me in very rare company. I am actually, a, I am aware of uh, Scalp Hunter. I've always had a very, I love Westerns. I don't mm. know what it is about them, but especially over at DC, uh, you got Scalp Hunter and uh, Jonah Hex and Batlash and all those other mm -hmm. famed characters from that point in time. And I always love learning a little something new about creative individuals like yourself and your colleagues in the industry where I'm like, I didn't know that. So now I have this like new, new little mini project, I feel like to go track down those issues of uh, Scalp Hunter you worked on because yeah, I love delving into the, like the, even like the niche parts of the comic book industry in terms of like, I didn't know this was a book. I totally have to get this book. Um, uh, my my co-host uh, Kevin, Kevin, he just recently informed me of a run on 2001: A Space Odyssey that uh, Jack Kirby did. That at certain points feels kind of like the film Westworld, and I, I I don't I need to track these down. I need to track down your Scalp Hunter and Kirby's uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey and add these to my collection. They sound like fantastic oh. books. Yeah, well, Kirby's work in particular is is surreal because, you know, you have this very cerebral uh, film, you know, with, with with incredible visuals, obviously, uh, and then you have Jack Kirby, who's known primarily, I think, as a very muscular, action-oriented artist, uh, adapting and and expanding on it. So it's a it's a I don't know who thought of it uh, to, to be honest, but it's like. What an interesting project that was. With regard to Scalp Hunter, it was one of those, those opportunities that came along as a result of me uh, having a contract with DC where they provided me with X number of books a month to write. And uh, when they were looking for you know something to, to fill my schedule, pretty much that was, that was one of the, the handful of books that was available. And I, I really jumped on it because like you, I'm a, I'm a kind of a fan for that kind of, uh, you know, offbeat material. And it was an opportunity not to just write another superhero book. And sometimes that, and sometimes the stuff that takes us away from our creative, like, you know, comfort zones and oh yeah forces us to flesh ourselves out produces work that is just as amazing as the stuff that we are kind of like, you know, known for. 
And oh, yeah. I've seen that over the years, reading comics with any number of different books, uh, stuff that you've worked on, uh, stuff you know by Roy Thomas, uh, Mike Grell, Len Straczewski, and uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor, just like any number of things that are a little off the beaten path, but they are still just mm -hmm. as enjoyable as the stuff that is like the bread and butter of the comic book industry, namely superheroes in this case, or sure. depending on who you talk to, horror, romance, whatever. It's an opportunity to stretch your muscles. It really, really is. And I love that so much because comics has blown up so much over the years. And every day we see new, fresh faces coming into the industry and getting to stretch their creative muscles in ways that I just look at it and I'm like, my goodness, I don't know how they do that. Like I, it is a, it is a genuine regard for the work that you and your colleagues have done over the years because I look at the worlds that you have crafted and created and it absolutely blows my mind every time. And so Jerry, thank you so much on behalf of myself and the team here at the Triple C podcast for taking time out of your schedule to have this conversation with me. Thank you for all of the work that you have done on comics over the years for the characters that you have created and the stamp you have put on the legacy of this crazy industry that we all know and love so much from the bottom of my well, heart thank, thank you. you sir thank you too so first of all i want to say thank you jerry for for taking the time to speak with us share your perspective and, and your history um within the comics and and film uh, industries as well man you are an absolute inspiration and uh, i definitely have have some some thoughts and comments but uh, but um josh tell me a little bit about what, what it was like speaking with him it honestly just felt like speaking with an old friend again because of those past conversations with Jerry that we had in 2019, way before the pandemic, way before the world went on its head. So it, it didn't feel like any time had passed, you know? And maybe that's just because of how personable he is, about how friendly he was toward me, uh, toward Mari. I know, Mari, you got to meet him um, that first mm -hmm. time as well, up at, up at the uh, Wisconsin Comic Con. And he's just such a delight to chat with. And he does have, like, this wealth of knowledge. And it's also crazy to think about. He literally broke into comics when he was just a teenager. So he was, you know, like we talked about in the conversation, writing supernatural stuff for DC when he was basically a junior senior in high school and by the time he was in his early 20s he was already kicking butt and being amazing over at Marvel with Spider-Man and all these other books. Like that is literally the definition of a of a young genius, which is why I used the comparison with uh, Orson mm -hmm. Welles and his and Welles's overnight successes. Very much living the dream, that's for sure. Also, I did do some uh, background checking, and for the Scalp Hunter series that he talked about, where he puts uh, Kawanate during the uh, timeline of the Civil War, that was Weird Western Tales 45 to 58 and 60 to 70. So from 1978 to 1980, he chronicled um, Scalp Hunter's involvement in the, in the American Civil War. And nice. If I can get my hands on some of these back issues, I will. Mm -hmm. I would love to. I mean, and especially because it's a very niche book like Weird Western Tales, it'll make it more difficult. But I relish the hunt. I relish the treasure chase. That's uh, part that's of it. All right, fun. Yep. Raven, take a take a pill. Yeah. <laughs> and except that me and Kevin were immediately like, "Yes, we we feel you. The hunt is what it's all about." <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> you're like no <laughs> zach you're just like i'm gonna go on amazon and ebay and get what i and need and not worry it about it yeah. <laughs> which is like also a fair perspective but you know i josh i'm totally with you with that um you know I, a couple of thoughts um for one i found it interesting that it, it seemed that i correct me if i'm wrong josh but it seemed it was in like the mid to late 70s when um jerry was over at dc uh, he mentioned that he had a lot more creative control over at Marvel than DC, which kind of strikes me as true, actually, thinking about where Jack Kirby was at that time. You know, he had left uh, Marvel, you know, through a, a lot of there are a lot of different different reasons. Um, a lot of it was creative differences. A lot of it was to, uh, seemed to be his real relationship with Stanley. Um and, and just kind of how his work was was profited. Um, and he went over to DC and you have instances where he's writing for Superman's friend, Jimmy Olsen. And the way he draws faces, Jack Kirby, is everyone's kind of a little, yeah, like, like Jerry had mentioned, like a little bit blocky, a little bit like meaty, I guess. And DC's like, we can't have that. So we, so especially not if you're drawing our golden boy Superman. They bring in their house artist, Kurt Swan, to redo all of the faces on Superman. If that's not creative hyper control, I don't know what is. So I guess that kind of strikes me as, as, as true. Um, but I don't know, man. Regarding Jack Kirby and the 2001 series, I, I, Jerry, I don't know who, who okayed it either, but I am sure as hell glad they did. That, that series is so insane. It's so insane and I will beat that drum. I love when we can get like these like deep dives into history. Obviously, getting Jerry Conway's perspective on like anything in comics is really cool. Cause, I mean, that's about as far back as you can. That's like some of the farthest back we can get still, right? Well, yeah. Cool. I mean, well, it's true. The, the the furthest back we could also reach would also be, you know, and I say knock on wood, would be any conversation with Roy Thomas. Because Roy started, you know, working over, was already working at Marvel by the time Jerry was breaking into the business over at DC. And Roy famously, of course, I remember this years ago, Zach, you and I, and we were at um, that convention down in Indiana, and I had the chance to speak with uh, Roy for a brief moment. And Oh, Indie, indie PopCon, right? Yeah, indie it was, in, yeah, Indie PopCon. And it was a real treat to get to chat with him very briefly, just you know, hearing about his experiences, what it was like working for Marvel, even in that the later years of the bullpen era of the 1960s, getting to interact with Stan and Jack and Fabulous Flo and all of the other names that we now hold so dear as like the the upper echelon of the Marvel creative mythos. And we, we've unfortunately lost a lot of good people as well over the years as well in the mark from, you know, that have worked in comics in general. Len Wein, just endless um, you know steve dicko passing away in 2018 and then stan lee passing away a few months later it's just you lose a lot of good people and to get to have these conversations with individuals like jerry who have been around for so long and left a literal stamp on the industry as a whole across the spectrum is a treat hey just want to say again really really well done on the interview josh both uh the interview itself and the editing and, and everything afterwards like it, it i know a lot goes into putting these together and uh just even reaching out and, and getting the interview in the first place so uh props to you my friend well done i mean i would say thank you but i don't love you enough oh you know what i did love 
No, I don't know if I loved it. I want to know if you guys loved it. Uh, but I'll let Kevin do uh, do the song for us before we transition fully into uh, our review. We've got some readers' reviews and all of the reviews. Let's talk a little bit about Moon Knight. Let's talk about a, a bit about that. Moon Knight. How long you been planning that? That was a good, good little ditty. Good job. Kevin. I like to I like to lean a little bit more into the whole like crooner thing if I'm doing my little re reader review jingle jingle jangle jingle jingle jangle so yeah anyway Moon Knight Disney Plus um gotta gotta keep up gotta keep up on stuff you know what I mean what do you guys what do you guys think about episode one just came out uh, uh, this past Wednesday and new episodes coming out uh, every Wednesday I believe oh boy that's uh, I'm glad I waited so long I I, I caught this like maybe three or four hours before we did the show. So I'm glad because that means I got way less time to wait. So that's exciting. Um, it's a hell of an opening scene uh, with a band putting on sandals full of crushed glass. I, I wonder how that's going to uh, become relevant. Um, overall, I liked it. I, I think my biggest complaint is, I think my biggest complaint is, hey, wait a minute. Moon Knight, an unrelate a show that's not supposed to be horror, somehow has better horror than anything I've seen <laughs> coming out of Resident Evil in the last like five years. Yeah, the the creature design on this, the character design on this, I did think was gorgeous. I agree. Um, I yeah, I you know, I, I appreciate that. Moon Knight seems to have a little bit more artistic integrity, I, I, shall we say, a little bit more artistic vision than a lot of other uh, products of the uh, Marvel product yeah. factory, shall we say. Everything seems to be a little bit more disconnected from the greater MCU, which I think at the end of the day is going to be to Moon Knight's benefit. Yeah, I, I think the more, the more disconnected it can be unless, you know, you bring in uh, Captain Britain or something. I don't know. This all takes place in London mainly, but I kind of like the touch that. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Moon, Moon Knight originally uh, I think he appeared in Werewolf by Night. So his whole shtick is that he's like a Batman esque uh, werewolf hunter, but the werewolves aren't real werewolves. They're kind of like egyptian jackal demons which is kind of interesting that it's you know not like you can kind of work in the essential parts of the character and and, and what he's about and who he fights and all that without kind of making it like oh now they're werewolves and they're like werewolves for no reason like actual universal movie werewolves um but i i don't know i liked the uh i i like the the flashes i guess just the whole disorientation of it um I don't know, just the fact that it leads to him having this moment in the uh, in the restaurant. You know, generally, I, I like the I, the concept that these werewolves are sort of uh, a bred by the Egyptian god Khonshu rather than just being a, like a universal movie monster, essentially, like like the like his adversaries kind of um, comics. Point of order: They're not bred by Kanshu. They're sent by by uh, Ethan Hawke's character Harrow. Correct. Yeah. Sorry about that. Like, I, I was just going to say, there's a lot of people who are probably into Egyptology out there, so you got to watch what you're saying. That man. Remember, Ethan Hawke is a servitor of Amit. Amit. Okay. Amit. Uh, 
there were a lot of there are a lot of details that kind of missed me because um here's the, what i liked about the most about it is sort of the the disjointed uh, uh pacing of it you know what i mean like you're kind of following along with uh gosh josh i'm sorry help me out because i know mark specter as uh you know as, as the main as the as moon knight but i think the character that we're following one of his personalities it goes by a different name stephen grant stephen grant so as we're kind of following him we're kind of getting this disjointedness it just I don't know. It becomes so heartbreaking. It does. But the thing that I really like about this show is that they're really going to lean in on the focus of his DID, his disassociative identity disorder, which is a huge part of the character in the comics. And we're going to get that with Mark and with Steven as both Moon Knight and Mr. Knight, which is the version where he's wearing like that immaculate white suit and the white face mask where with the uh, with the moon with the half moon uh, pattern stitched onto its uh, forehead i i gotta say i i so far unlike when i was watching hawkeye this has just immediately grabbed my attention right there's lots of interesting things going on i'm immediately on board it's it's fascinating to see where this is gonna go you know you get the the hidden it's a razor right god it's a razor when was the last time we saw a razor cell phone people uh right but you have that hidden in the apartment and you've got you know steven trying to pick up uh a girlfriend when there's obviously someone on the other end of the line for mark i have to say i um so dissociative dissociative identity disorder is incredibly rare and incredibly complex um and it's so overdone and overrepresented in tv and movies and it frustrates me in something like this because it's not necessary you know what i mean like it's a fictional alternative universe with you know an infinite variable of explanations for why this guy might have um you know voices in his head without it being this very real disorder um i liked that it was represented well to a point right when he's like waking up in weird places um and very confused about how and why he got there that's a lot closer to what i think the actual experience of did is like um but you're certainly not having conversations with multiple voices in your head at the same time and with your other personality with the other personalities and stuff like that the other identities um so it's always going to be my little gripe around things like that um i you know it's a very prominent thing in uh oh josh what's the show that i love on hbo max and all of a sudden i can't think of the name of it doom patrol um but even her dissociative identity disorder is still built a little bit and explained a little bit more by her it being a superpower but not really i'm not doing a great job my point just being i'd love in the future to see this trope being done without it necessarily being tied to a very weird real disorder um especially because people i think you know there's been tiktok trends of people doing things like 
you know, making up having disorders, you know, whether or not it's things like Tourette's or multiple personalities, it's not healthy for anyone. Uh, all that being said, the rest of it was great. Hey, Oscar Isaac does a pretty decent uh, British accent, so well done you. Um, that opening sequence with the walking on glass was honestly one of the most disturbing things I've seen on television or in a movie in a really long time. I had a visceral reaction to it, like my stomach and my teeth hurt. Um, but other than that, yeah, I'll, I'll keep watching it. Mari, when when he like drank the glass, he put it in the like handkerchief and he broke it. Did you also go mazel tov? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did, of course. Look, I, uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Was... Oh man, I, yeah, I think overall it's, it, this has a lot of, of promise. Um, but Josh, what would you think of it? I absolutely loved it. Now I've been a fan of Moon Knight for a very long time, so. I am here for this show. Like, the minute I saw that first trailer and how they're making the costume look more like Egyptian wrappings as opposed to just the white bodysuit and everything, absolutely freaking adored it. Um, I love the fact that we're getting F. Murray Abraham as the voice of Khonshu because that's, Mari, I know you probably will find that really awesome, because like me, you're a big film buff, so you're familiar with his role as uh, Salieri in Amadeus. Yes. <laughs> so I think this is fun that we're going to get him voicing this, like, you know, snarky, snotty, vengeful, like, you know, Egyptian deity, who we already kind of get, like, that knows him that he's a bit of an asshole, because he's like, oh, God, it's the other one. Get out of here, parasite, and let Mark and I handle this. And I'm like... Damn, Kanju's a bitch. He reminded me a lot of Venom when he was doing that. Thing. Oh, you're here all. Do, do we? Can we eat them now? Like, oh, no, we can't eat them. Like, you know, I was almost half expecting that to happen. But um, I think overall, like, I like the style of the show. But Ethan Hawke's character, to me, kind of strikes me as a very typical superhero villain. You know what I mean? Like. You know, your super powered Charles Manson kind of a guy is like, you know, uh, foil. I am also being listened to by. So uh, I kind of hope that in the future episodes, and of course, we're only looking at episode one, um, that in the future, Ethan Hawke's character kind of gets the, the sort of depth that uh, characters like Hella or Bushmaster, even Thanos um, get kind of the fleshing out and interest as a villain and just not be just just cookie cutter well the thing that's interesting is that and this is where i did my research aspect is that in the comics arthur harrow showed up in one issue of the second run of moon knight uh issue two in 1985 so he already is an existing villain even as a one-time villain for our boy mark specter to go up against so the fact that they're taking this guy who was a one-shot villain and trying to flesh him out more by making him actually be a threat on a level that Moon Knight will really have to deal with is interesting. And also because we're going to clearly get some really great scenes, whether in the present or the past, in Egypt, some stuff that'll feel very much like the things we get from The Mummy 2. You know, like lots of just dealing with the pyramids and ancient curses and magics and whatnot. So I love that we're getting that, like... So that supernatural element that is such a, a, a component with certain Marvel characters. I.e., give us, give us, um, not Swamp Thing, give us Man Thing. 
Yes. Give us, give us man thing. Oh man. You know what? Here's the thing. Man thing is such a multi, he's like a, he's swamp thing, but he's also like a, an interdimensional gateway. So maybe after uh, the new doctor strange, we've got the multiverse broken open. Maybe we will get man thing. Um, but you know, speaking of things that have come to pass, unlike a man thing show or movie, the end of the show is upon us here today. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you, Jerry Conway, so much for joining us and for your enthusiasm and, uh, and, and knowledge and expertise and perspective. Uh, always always a, a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, if you uh, are looking for something to do on Wednesday nights, I stream on, the, uh, on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash podcast. I think it's high time. And I, I've been kind of putting this off, I think ever since I started streaming, I've been wanting to do this. I think it's time to start Undertale. I think it's time to finally play Undertale for the first time. So if you want to see normal uh, Kevin E. Triple C podcast nonsense, twitch.tv slash CCC podcast. Um, you can find us, uh, of course, as always on Twitter, all the good social medias, Instagram. And from all of us here, I'm Kevin. I'm Mari. I'm Josh. I have arrived precisely when I mean to, at the end of the outro, and not a second before. We look forward to seeing you all next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Bye for now, everyone.